And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal, the full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the second best day of the week. That's right. It's The Real Investment Show on Thursday. Getting ready to wrap up this week already. Went by pretty quick. Um, now, as of August the 7th, which is just next week, um, we will have 81% of the entire S&P 500 will have reported earnings. So for the most part, uh, we'll have almost all of the major corporate earnings out, except for NVIDIA, which comes out later in the month of August. But by next week, we will have a really good handle on exactly just how you know, strong this uh, earnings season was. And it's been interesting because companies have been coming out and announcing good earnings. Uh, the, the companies beating earnings estimates have not been rewarded all that terrifically. That They're up a little bit, but you know, not like in the past where we saw a company beat earnings and they were up you know, 30, 40% a day. We haven't seen that type of activity. So the rewards for beating earnings haven't been all that stellar, but the, uh, you know, the punishment for missing estimates has also not been all that bad. Um, so, you know, a lot, and so what that's telling us is, is that a lot of the market had already kind of priced in um, the expectation for these earnings. And so, and, and not surprising because we've been talking about this for a while, markets tend to price things in. And of course the run up of the market over the last, you know, a uh, couple of months in particular has been based on this idea that earnings have bottomed in quarter one and that we're going to now start to see some improvement. And that's the hope right now is that that continues as we get you know, some disinflationary pressures, right? Inflation's coming down. Interesting chart out by uh, Goldman Sachs this morning that by the end of next year, really uh, by, by mid next year, we're going to be back to around two, two and a half percent inflation. Housing and shelter costs are coming down. That's going to continue to suppress inflation at that point. So you have more disinflation, you know, kind of in the road ahead. But importantly, though, that also leads to slower economic growth, right? Economic growth can't be rising when you have disinflation. So it's going to be a very interesting challenge between what is going on in the economy, this disinflation. And if you're having disinflation and slower economic growth, that also means that earnings aren't going to grow as strongly, maybe as expectations are. So a lot of these more lofty expectations for earnings going back to all-time highs by next year may start to get ratcheted down a bit over the course of the next few months as we get towards the end of this year and into the first part of next year. But again, this is always the case, right? This is what we said coming into this earnings season, that we had a very big drop in earnings estimates. So yes, companies are beating estimates, as we've said before. You know, it's not surprising because we lowered the bar enough that, you know, 80% of companies can get over it. So, you know, that's exactly what's been happening. But that those earnings beats are what's been kind of lifting the markets now for the last couple of months in particular. And we've had a very, very strong advance. And, you know, and the one thing that we've been talking about for a while here is that market exuberance has really, really come back strongly. Uh, you know, if you take a look at the, you know, I'm, we had a chart, several charts in last weekend's newsletter. Um, but you take a look at the American Association of Individual Investors, right? Bullish sentiment has risen very sharply. In fact, bull the bullishness of individual investors is, is really back to, to near some of the highest levels we've seen previously. 
And again, they've all just kind of come back in the markets. And, and this is interesting only from the standpoint that it was just last October that everybody was so bearish on the markets, right? It's like, oh, the, you know, the, the markets are going lower, the Fed's hiking rates, we're going to have a recession, it's terrible. And, you know, all these bad things are going to happen. We have a banking crisis in, in March of this year. And yet, just since then, investors have gone, oh, what the heck, it's all fine, and thrown all their money in the market. And now we see the same type of bullish sentiment, really, that we saw back in 2020, 2021, after that, you know, shutdown of the economy, and we flooded the system with liquidity. Everybody was like, hey, this is great. Casinos now open. Let's all throw our money into the markets. We're seeing that same type of bullish sentiment now, but you don't have all those liquidity support. So it's just a very interesting kind of situation that we've got going on. But as we've been talking about, the markets have had this very, very good big advance. They've gotten very overbought short term. And, and of course, this is the, the big question, right? It's kind of what happens next. So having said that, here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Um, we've been talking about this correction that, that we're going to have. And, and the kind of was saying this ad nauseum over the last couple of weeks is, hey, expect a 3 to 5% correction. Probably August, September, we'll get that. And almost like clockwork, we start August and we already have a fairly decent correction away. Market's down over 1% yesterday. We are looking to take out the 20-day moving average today. So again, that's really been running support for this market really ever since that March kind of you know turmoil that we had with the banking crisis. Since then, the market has been running right along that 20-day moving average. Um, so uh, uh, just a break of the 20-day is not a, big, uh, not a big deal, right? It's just a level of support that we've got going on right now. And we've broken that 20-day before and then gotten right back above it. But importantly, it's the 50-day moving average that is sitting here uh, right around 4280 on the S&P right now. That's going to be kind of the next kind of big level of support for this market to hang on to, which would also which is also important because that keeps us within kind of this running trend channel of the markets. And the markets have been in this very defined trend channel ever since that March low. We've just been kind of running right along a very narrow channel. So uh, the market kind of breakdown here below this 20 day, we're gonna to start to test the bottom of that trend channel from the March lows. And then again, that kind of puts us in spot for that test of the 50 day moving average. Now, if we get below the 50 day moving average, that's still not a bear market. It's still not a crisis situation. And it's very possible that we could come down and ultimately kind of test this, even the 200 day moving average would not be out of the question. That'd be about a 10% decline from the peak. Certainly normal for within any given year of the market. And particularly given that we've had such a strong advance in the markets this year, a correction back to the 200 day moving average is not out of the question at all. I don't really expect that to happen over the next month or so. It certainly could. But if it, if, if it does, again, that's, you know, you have a lot of the bears come back out of the, the closet and saying, hey, see, I told you it was just a, a bull trap. Now the bear market's back in control. It's not. It's just going to be within kind of this running, you know, kind of bullish advance of the markets. But most likely, I expect that somewhere between the 50-day and, and maybe the 100-day moving average at worst, the market's probably going to find its footing. And, and important about this is that we've got two things going on that suggest we've got a little bit more of this sell-off to go, is, is that we did trigger a MACD buy signal again uh, yesterday with that sell-off. So we now <clears throat> are back on a sell signal from a fairly elevated level. But the relative strength index of the market is already heading back towards oversold. So we may have a day or two more of this kind of sell-off in the markets. 
uh, we find some short-term level of support, the market probably bounces. Um, and then we may try to you know, run a little bit lower here and again, come back down and, and work our way towards that 50-day moving average. Or the other option is we just kind of trade sideways uh, for the next month or so and markets really don't go anywhere. We kind of work off some of these broader overbought conditions, allows the moving averages to catch up with the market. The market kind of resets itself a bit. And then we get that uh, potential end of the year rally, October, November, December, which typically tends to be, well, it's the beginning of the seasonally strong six months of the year. So we get into that stronger kind of end of the year rally. And I would expect that rally to occur because you have a lot of portfolio managers trailing the markets right now, needing to catch up on performance. So any kind of pullback we get here is likely going to be an opportunity to buy the dip, so to speak, for, for professional managers to get that kind of performance picked up before end of the year reporting because that's their job, right? I mean, that's what they got to do. But that's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Importantly, when we come back from the break, I'm going to pick up with Michael Leibowitz all over the news. Joe Manchin on CNBC this morning, the debt downgrade, right? Just exactly how terrible is this? Or is it just ridiculous? We'll talk about that after the break. Don't go away. I'm your host, Lance Roberts, right here this morning for The Real Investment Show. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So you almost have to laugh. Senator Joe Manchin is on CNBC right now as we're speaking, talking about we, we have a fiscal runaway train in Washington, D.C. And we have to take the debt problem you know, seriously and we need to do something about it, right? And this is one of the architects of people that voted for the Inflation Reduction Act of $1.7 trillion in exchange for benefits to his constituency. So, you know, it's great to have these, uh, you know, talking mouthpieces in Washington, but there's really no serious, no, nobody is serious about reducing the debt and cutting spending because it's not that hard to do. I mean, fixing the debt problem in Washington is not difficult. It's, it's a very easy fix. It's just that nobody wants to do that because that would mean spending less money and, well, that's not what they want to do. But um, I, I, this happened on Tuesday. Um, Fitch downgraded the U.S. debt from AAA to AA plus with a long-term outlook stable on the rating. And, of course, this has gotten the media all in a tizzy. It's like, oh, my gosh, downgraded the debt. It's terrible. Is it? I mean, is it really terrible? I mean, uh, is there, has there ever been a point in history where we've seen something similar in the United States? And so I said yesterday, I said, you know, we, uh, you know, it was a hot topic yesterday, but I wanted to wait till today to pick up with Michael Leibowitz to discuss it in more detail. Um, Mike, welcome to the show this morning. How are you? Doing great. Thank you. Good. I just wanted to read to you a, a, a little bit this morning, you know, as, as part of this conversation, we'll, we'll get into this uh, a bit more. But uh, Jamie Dimon out yesterday talking about the downgrade of the U.S. credit rating, saying it's absolutely ridiculous. It doesn't matter much. What's your opinion? Does it matter? I think Jamie Dimon's right. It doesn't matter. And if it did matter, 
it was beyond a joke that we were triple A. Right. Um, we were nowhere close to triple A. I was doing a little work yesterday. And uh, one of the thing, one of the uh, calculations that the rate that Fitch and S&P and Moody's, the rating agencies do is a debt to service coverage ratio. And basically it says, how much debt do you have and what's your cash flow? So if you were to do that for the government, the debt is the debt outstanding and the cash flow or the annual tax receipts. Now that doesn't include all the money that's going back out the door, but if we just assume that all they have were tax receipts and this debt, then the ratio is close to 10 to one. A double, a single B company is five to one. A single B company is a junk rated company. Mm -hmm. A triple C company is slightly over 10 at 11. Triple C companies are basically on death's doorstep. So if you were to, to realistically look at our credit and come up with a credit rating based on how you rate companies, we're junk rated debt. Um, and it's not even close, right? We, right. We're, we have, what, about $3 trillion in tax receipts. And right off the bat, before you do anything, you got to pay a trillion in interest. Then you got your defense budget and Social Security. And there's not even a shot of running a surplus. So the odds of paying the debt down are zero. However, and this is the big however, it doesn't matter. Right. We're not a company. We, unlike companies, we can print money. Although sometimes I think <laughs> Apple and Microsoft can print money, but we can, we can actually print money. We have the Fed. So what's interesting is if you look at our interest expense from 1970 to 1920, it rose by about five to 600 billion. In the last three years, it's risen by about the same. And the reason is higher interest rates. Mm -hmm. More debt, but higher interest rates are the, the much larger driver in that equation. So not only can we print money, but we have a Federal Reserve that is, have, and will push, in, not is, but will do if they need to, and certainly has in the past, push interest rates much lower to make the debt affordable. Right. right. If if the debt has a zero percent interest rate, anyone can afford unlimited amounts of debt. Um, so, you know, this is coming into view now because interest rates are higher. Their feds in, the Treasury's interest expense is starting to ramp up a little bit. And the Treasury is still spending like drunken sailors, even though we're well beyond the pandemic here. Yeah. Um, but bottom line is, I think the whole idea that you're rating the USA is a joke. And if you are going to rate it, rate it properly. Don't don't just give it a triple A um, well, or double A plus. Now now, now don't forget, don't forget, though, we are talking about the same rating agencies that, you know, were rating subprime mortgage debt triple A, you know, in 2007. You know, right, right. So, you know, the rating agencies are, are, are great, but we have to remember that, you know, first of all, rating agencies are pay to play. So if I want to have Fitch rate my so so Mike and I are going to start a company and we're going to issue some debt to build our widgets or whatever well we can go to Fitch or Moody's or S&P and we pay them for a rating well if I'm paying them for a rating what kind of rating do you think I'm going to get <laughs> right and especially if right. I'm a larger and company. competition with each other exactly so if you're not so if I got to Mike's point if I go to S&P and they go, well, you know, we'll give you a B plus rating. And I go, well, you know, Fitch just told me they give me an A rating. 
And Moody said they give me a, an A-plus rating, right? You know, yeah, to, to Mike's point, there's, it's all a competition. It's all a game. And that's why you have to be really cautious. So just, just a quick side, sidebar here. This is why you have to be really cautious. Just don't buy bonds based on their rating. And I, I see people do this all the time. Well, I bought this bond. It's, it's A-rated. Have you looked at their balance sheet? Have you done looked at their income statement, their cash flows, their debt-to-income ratios? Just because a bond is A-rated, and I'm going to give you a really good example of a bond. There was a bond in 2007 that was AA-rated. On September the 13th, sorry, on September the 7th of 2008, they were AA-rated. They went into bankruptcy two days later, and they were junk bonds. That was Lehman Brothers. Right, the debt the debt rating agencies never downgraded the debt for Lehman Brothers, even though they were fiscally insolvent. You know, heading into the the 2008 crisis. So this is the point of why just because a bond is A rated or B rated or whatever it is, you've got to really look at the balance sheet and see what you're dealing with. There's companies that are I think are misrated on the downside too. You know, Mike and I have looked at Ford, you know, Ford Motors before, and it's it's a double B rated bond, but their balance sheet is actually probably stronger than what a double B rating is. So there's, you know, there are things that you've got to look beyond just the rating, you know, if you're buying debt for your own portfolio. Okay, so sidebar over back to work here, Mike. Well, the the other the other thing when you're looking at that stuff, you'll say, oh, well, double A companies, the odds of a double A company defaulting are, you know, point something something percent. Right. You know, basically it doesn't happen. And the reason it doesn't happen is because sometimes the rating agencies are actually doing their job and they downgrade it. So the double A company that's in trouble, like Lehman, Lehman actually went from double A to default. That was a rarity. Typically, they'll be doing their job to some degree and they'll bring it to single A, triple B, single B, CCC, and then it defaults. Right. So so when you look at triple A, double A companies that have defaulted, the, you know, it's near zero because there's usually some rating change before the default. Yep. Uh, Lehman just happened so fast. They didn't have a chance to. And, you know, keep in mind, like you said, Lance, the most important part is I don't think the U.S. pays for their ratings, but all these companies pay for their ratings. And if you're Fitch or S&P or Moody's, you want to you want to keep them in your good graces. So you're going to keep that rating agency at or above what it should be. Exactly. So let's um, you know. So so focusing back on this downgrade, you know, another reason that you know rating U.S. debt is a little bit ridiculous, and and why and we're going to talk a little bit about history here uh, when we come back from the break. Is that there is a difference between U.S. Treasury debt and corporate debt. So, you know, again, you know, to Mike's point, you know, if you really wanted to rate based on cash flows and income and debt and those type of things, uh, the U.S. Treasury would never be AAA rated. But dropping it to a AA plus rating with an outlook stable, it really doesn't matter. Fitch doesn't set the price of, or S&P or anybody else, doesn't set the price of U.S. Treasuries. That is... The, the market demand, right? That's what buyers of, of U.S. debt are willing to pay for. And again, this goes back to a conversation that Mike and I have had numerous times with you, um, whether it was relative to the dollar devaluation scare or whether it was the, the inflation scare, whatever it was, you know, we keep coming back to this one basic premise about U.S. debt, which is that where else are you going to put your money? Again, 
The U.S. Treasury is the premier debt instrument for storing reserves, reserve currencies anywhere in the world. And that's, you know, again, where are you going to go put your reserve currency? You can put it in Turkey, Russia, China, wherever else you're going to be. The market is going to set the price of what's happening with U.S. Treasuries. And part of what we're going to talk a little bit more about this morning is a little bit about history as well with respect to debt downgrades. What does that mean for, you know, the, the debt, you know, following the debt downgrade? We'll talk a little bit about history and, and we'll get a little bit more into this. But but Mike, uh, just a closing point. This was something that uh, Jamie Dimon said. He said, still, the debt, this is quote unquote from Jamie Dimon. It doesn't really matter much because it's not the market or it's the market, not the rating agencies that determine borrowing costs. It's ridiculous that other countries have higher trading ratings than the U.S. and they depend on the stability created by the U.S. and its military. So quick comment for the break, Mike. I guess not. OK. We'll uh, no, no, that, that, sorry, that's exactly right. We we have the reserve currency. We can print money and we have the biggest army. Yeah. Triple A, single A, it doesn't matter. There you go. Be right back after it's the break. Free. We will talk a little bit about history too as well. Don't go away. Life is an illusion. Can't you see that love is everywhere? Step into the confusion. Can't you hear the sound that's in the air? investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com so welcome back to the show this morning it's interesting you know um they say timing is everything and it's always interesting that the media runs out and tries to grab a headline to line up with some event in the financial markets. We've been talking about for weeks now that the market was extremely overbought. We were very extended from underlying moving averages and that we were going to get a correction. And of course, what do you need to have a correction in the markets? You've got to have some event, right? You got to have something that kind of spooks investors to go, you know what, I'll take some profit. And so, of course, you know, we get this debt downgrade that comes out from Fitch. And that's the reason, right? It was something that really wasn't expected by the markets. Nobody was waking up last Thursday going, you know, I think Fitch is going to downgrade U.S. debt. <laughs> wasn't happening. So Fitch makes this announcement, spooks the market, you get a sell-off, and now you've got headlines everywhere, which kind of feeds the beast a bit. U.S. credit downgrade, this is CNN right now, U.S. credit downgrade royals the markets. No, we're just having a correction. We needed a correction. Markets were very extended. It's unhealthy for the markets to be as extended as they were. So you need a correction. It also gives you a better buying opportunity to add money to equities. But again, we want to. We always have to take these headlines, and we've got to make a whole lot of meat out of them, right? Because we need to get you to click and view and those type of things. Because that's what you know. That's how we survive today is by you know ratings and viewership and all that type of stuff. How many people like it? Um, but we need to really focus on the importance of what 
you know, of this, whatever event it is that triggers a sell-off in the market and becomes a media headline for, you know, 25 seconds, is it really serious or not? And this is the the conversation we're having today is that, you know, I'm, and I am sure, and I've been getting tons of emails like this debt downgrade. I mean, this is terrible. It's yeah, it's not great. Right. But does it mean anything? Right. Um, and as we're, we're talking about, you know, in the last segment is that where else are you going to store your money is reserve currency. Right. If, if you've got reserves in any other country, where are you going to store them? And your only choice is the U.S. Treasury. And, you know, the other question becomes, well, you know, has any other country ever, you know, had a, a debt problem and a deficit problem like this? And, you know, we talk about what Mike made a very important point in the last segment about interest rates and, and the Federal Reserve. And so we asked the question, well, has any other country ever had a debt problem like this and a deficit problem? And, you know, what did what happened with their interest rates and what happened with their central bank? Mike, can you think of any country off the top of your head that is running a 250 to 80 percent debt to GDP ratio right now? Uh, Japan's in there. <laughs> yeah. And uh, what, what have they been doing as of late with the uh, Bank of Japan, their central bank? Um in order to maintain their debt and you know their survivability? Well, let's see, their short-term rates are near zero. They just made the bold move of slowly letting their 10-year rate go from half a percent to 1%. They own, what I don't know the latest number, what, 70% of 80. all Japanese debt? Yeah, almost 80% is, actually now. Right, They're, and you know it's also worth noting their demographics and economic potential growth rate are much are worse than ours in both instances. They have a much older population. Uh, not, you know, just just in really poor shape. I don't even know what their debt's rated. Do you offhand? I, I, I don't, but we buy JGBs almost every single day as the yen carry trade uh, for U.S. Treasuries. Right. I'm guessing it's double A, though. Yeah. Same as ours. But bottom line is their their Federal Reserve, the Bank of Japan, has basically stepped in and ensured that rates will be where they want them to be. So the problem we're having now is that interest rates perked up. And if you're running a Ponzi scheme and that's what we're running, it's a Ponzi scheme, right? Right. It's just run by the police, not a mob in the back alley. <laughs> that's the difference. Exactly. It's <laughs> a legal Ponzi. Blinders. So, <laughs> um you know, it, it's it's manageable, but if rates keep going up, it's not manageable. And look, the Fed knows it. The tra everyone knows this. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, rates will be much lower at some point in the future because we can't afford this. Right. Um, and, 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 and it, it's not that we can't afford it. Right. But don't get too far off the point of Japan. There, there's a point I want you to make. With uh, there's a point I'm trying to get to with Japan, <laughs> which is important uh, to this conversation is that okay. Japan is running a 30-year lead time on the U.S. Their problem started 30 years ago. Their aging demographic, their, un, their unfunded uh, pension system that they have in, in Japan is grossly unfunded, just like Social Security here. There's a tremendous amount of similarity between Japan and the United States in terms of demographics, pension plans, you know, the debt and, and you know, yield curve controls and those type of things. They're just running a 10 to 20 to 30 year, you know, head start on us. So if you want to take a look right. at where we're going to be ultimately, we'll be Japan. And here's the here's the point I want to make. They're still here, right? They're still chugging along. 
And, you know, everybody's going, well, this is going to, you know, this is the demise of America as we know it. You know, we're all going to end up in a big flaming shipwreck. Japan's still hanging in there. They're, they're not doing great, right? <laughs> they're not great. Don't want to go be in Japan, but they haven't, you know, the, the, I remember 20 years ago, we were talking about Japan was a, a, a fly in search of a windshield, and that fly still hasn't found the windshield yet. And we just kind of keep going along. So the, the, the big point about this is that, you know, at 120% of debt to GDP where we are now, Japan's at 280. We, we got a long, we, there's still a lot of runway here in ramping up debt to GDP before things really get bad. And, and a lot of games can be played between now and then to make everyone think it's not a big deal. Right. That's right. But. But, right. you know, at the end of the day, it's not sustainable. It's not a sustainable trend. And it 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 involves, as we see with Japan, as we see with the U.S., as we see with Europe and England, it involves in order to keep the scam going, the Ponzi scheme, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. it involves more and more central bank influence, more activity, more involvement. Yep. So, you know, that's kind of the takeaway. So if the Federal Reserve is going to have to be more involved to allow the Treasury to run more greater debts, what does that mean for asset prices, right. for gold, bonds, stocks, you name it? And, uh, you know, unfortunately, that has increasingly over the last 20, 30 years more. You know, we talk about this all the time. What do we talk? We talk about the Fed all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, why is it? Because the Fed is what is the glue for this Ponzi scheme. It keeps it together. Right. If interest rates went to eight, 10 percent, this this would be a much bigger problem. But they're not. Well, and, 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 and that's a, that's a very important point. Sorry to interrupt you, but that's an important point I don't want you to, to, to miss. And, and I got an email about this yesterday. It's like, well, what you, why why is your view so different than Jeremy Grantham and Ray Dalio and and some of these other you know uh, you know great investors of our time and you know they they are no no doubt about that but they're saying that interest rates are gonna, you know because of this debt and because of the downgrade interest rates are going to surge dramatically higher and you know let's go back to Japan for just a moment and what you said earlier. There's only a one-way ticket for interest rates at this point. Yeah, you may have a short-term, you know, blip higher, but there's only one place you can go with interest rates as you continue to pile on debt. Right, right. And if you don't think Yellen's been on the phone with Powell the last few days, if interest rates have perked up, you're crazy. Yeah, they've been talking, they've been strategizing. Doesn't mean that they can't go higher, and they probably will go higher over the next few days or week. But you know, in 2011 we saw interest rates drop half a percent. Well, hold on, hold on. Don't, don't jump off that cliff just yet because I want to talk about history when we come back from the break because we're about to come up on it. But mm -hmm. uh, that 2011 is a very, very important year relating to this con to, to our conversation. And, and I, I, I want to cut, give that, I want to have enough time to really go through 2011 yep. and what happened there specifically because it's always interesting to me. We always forget our history. When we you know we do things like this, um, you know, debt downgrade or you know the debt ceiling or a default on the debts like you know when when we were talking about the debt ceiling debacle earlier this year it's like oh we have to raise the debt ceiling because we've never defaulted our debt well actually we have we just forget our history that we had a debt ceiling debate issue back in the 1970s and we actually defaulted on our debt while we were getting that resolved and it, and guess what it wasn't the end of the world so 
you know, it's it's always important to look back at history. And we always look at these, you know, kind of one-off events of, you know, this debt downgrade. This has never happened before. Or has it? And it has have these things have these things occurred? And then again, to to what we'll talk about after the break with, with Mike in much more detail is if it's happened before, what was the outcome of it? Was the most dire predictions of you know a collapse in the dollar and a surge in interest rates off to the moon because of something as dire as a downgrade? Did that occur, or what actually happened following? that debt downgrade or that default or whatever it was. These, and this is why it's always important to look back at history. But before we get to the break, Mike, just, you know, again, I, I don't want to, to drop off on this more important point, which is the function of, of the Fed and the Treasury relating to interest rates. And yes, there's a lot of calls here that interest rates have to go surging off to the moon now because we just have so much debt. But again, there's plenty of anecdotal evidence historically as well as, as recently that we're not really in control of interest rates. You know, the bond market doesn't solely control the interest rates anymore. You know, we have these central banks that are playing, you know, very large influences on where interest rates are headed. But when we come back from the break, uh, I do want to pick up with Michael Leibowitz. We're going to talk a little bit about history, particularly 2011. What happened in 2011 and why is it important to where we are today? Don't go away. news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com and welcome back to the show this morning so we are talking a bit this morning about the fitch downgrade of the u.s debt and again lots of of you know, people are concerned. Obviously, I mean, it's, this is certainly headline making, right? Oh my gosh, you downgraded the U.S. debt. Political channels are all over this story. You know, regardless of which side of the the fence you're on, I mean, it makes for great headlines. Uh, Wall Street Journal this morning: America's fiscal time bomb ticks even louder. Fitch's downgrade of the U.S. debt rating only caused a flutter in the markets, but fiscal strains will soon get harder to ignore. Um. You know, it's just interesting because we, we tend to forget our history. And all we have to do is go back to 2011. Now, what was, what was interesting about 2011 in particular, and I'm not going to steal Mike's thunder here, but as we got into early 2011, let's go back to 2010 for a moment. In July, in June of 2010, quantitative easing Part two uh, was coming to an end. 
And we had, had, had done quantitative easing part one in 2008 that ended in 2009. And then in September of 2009, after that ran out, uh, Ben Bernanke came in, did another trillion dollars worth of QE2. That ended in June of the following year. So in 2010, in June-ish, uh, the Fed stopped doing quantitative easing and the markets sold off. Each time that the Fed would stop these QE programs, the markets would sell off because of the contraction of liquidity. Makes complete sense. And then by the time we got to Jackson Hole and the September Fed meeting, we were getting some type of new program. And you know, after quantitative one, after QE1 ended in 2009, markets fell by about 20%. And in September, Ben Bernanke launched QE2. In, Q, in, in 2010, when it ended, um, the markets fell by about 20%. Again, we had another correction. And the Federal Reserve went to what we called Operation Twist, which was not really QE. It was kind of a QE light, so to speak. Um, and so the market started rallying very nicely. And, and you know, following that kind of migration, the markets were rallying very, very well. We had a nice rally heading into early 2011. And in early 2011, we had the rise of Godzilla. Because that was where the Japanese tsunami created, which was an earthquake, created a tsunami that then flooded Japan and caused the Fukushima meltdown. But more importantly, it just completely shut down the manufacturing process out of Japan. We couldn't get auto parts, anything, right? So we were having a manufacturing recession heading into the summer of 2011. I mean, this was, you know, this was a big concern for the markets is that all of a sudden, We've got this economic shutdown that's going to impact manufacturing earnings, et cetera. So markets were kind of having this correction that was going on because of what was happening on the manufacturing side. But in the midst of all this, Mike, what happened in the midst of the summer of 2011 in combination with all this other stuff going on? So on August 5th, the S&P downgraded the U.S. from AAA to AA+. I assume that's what you're talking about, yep. Lance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and this was also in the midst of what? What what else was going on in the midst of this uh whole downgrade? Why why did S&P downgrade the debt? Do you remember? Uh was it another one of the 45,000 debt cap limit <laughs> yeah. uh, debates and, that couldn't uh that they were they were struggling with once again. Exactly. We had this debt ceiling debate going on and the S&P specifically noted that it was the reason they were downgrading the debt was because of basically the fiscal irresponsibility at that time and this whole debate over the debt ceiling issue, there was no fiscal responsibility being put into place by lawmakers, which ironically is exactly what Fitch just quoted for this downgrade. But but here's what's interesting, Lance. And that's a, those are fair statements, right? Yeah. But it's only gotten worse, much worse <laughs> since 2011. The political divide, the fiscal stupidity just everything and higher interest rates. You right? haven't. So why Congress it, has why not passed a budget just. since 2000. Congress has not passed a single budget since 2008. We have been living on these continuing resolutions. So, yes, there's absolutely no fiscal responsibility if you can't even pass a budget. Right. So why? So S&P has shown they're willing to cut it. Why don't they cut it again and again and again? Right. And, you know, I think the answer is because it's very political. And yeah, of course. Yeah, you know, and look, I, I doubt, I highly doubt the U.S. government pays for their credit rating, but there are other quid pro quo benefits for rating the U.S. government AAA or AA plus. If they were to rate them single A, double B, whatever they would, 
they would have a lot more problems on their hands. The IRS would probably be knocking on S&P's door tomorrow. <laughs> the SEC. <laughs> the SEC, you name it. There would only be two big rating agencies after that happened. Yeah, exactly. But but uh, so here but here's the important thing I want to get to Mike. So so exactly the same situation we had back in in uh, 2011 that we had today. We had a market that was rallying strongly. You had the debt downgrade, the market sold off with the debt downgrade. Markets were down about 20% following that debt downgrade because Surprise event, and you had the debt downgrade in the midst of this whole economic shutdown coming out of Japan. So you had this this one-two punch that hit the markets. Markets dropped rather sharply. Not surprisingly, bond yields ticked up at that point because, oh my gosh, you just downgraded the debt. That means yields have to be higher, right? Makes complete sense what happened. Um, What immediately happened following all that? In terms of your, your, you just did some research on this. Right, right. It's kind of fascinating. So, so you look at what happened. The debt got downgraded. Well, let's start with the debt. What happened to interest rates? They initially perked up for a day or two. They rose about 10 to 15 basis points. Mm-hmm. But within the first month, they were down half a percent. Well, then you say, okay, the dollar must have got slammed, right? Our credit right. rating's not AAA anymore. Au contraire. The, uh, the dollar rose about 3% over the first month. Um, after falling again, fell slightly in the first initial days, but rose pretty, you know, 3% may not sound like a lot, but for a currency, that's a pretty big move. And that's the, Mm -hmm. that's what, that's the dollar index. So that's a weighted index against the yen, the Euro, the pound and, you know, other currencies. Um, well, gold must've done great. Right. And yeah, initially gold did really well in the first month, it was up 10%. Um, and it really, it never had a drawdown within, you know, that first month it was positive from the get go. But if we look a year out, gold was actually down almost 2%. Stocks got hit. Stocks were, were hit the most. They were down about 8% within that first month, but there too, within the first year, they were up, you know, at the end of the first year, they were up almost 20%. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, if you were to ask someone what the effect would be, I think that the first two answers would be bonds are going to get killed and the dollar is going to get killed. Well, that clearly didn't happen. Then you can start talking about stocks and gold and other things. But clearly the reaction was not what anyone would have expected. Um, Maybe, you know, the initial reaction. But I, I think, look, at the end of the day, what this does is it stresses the importance of the Fed and that they have to get back to QE. They have to get back to lower interest rates. And, you know, this, I think, helps helps everyone understand the importance of that and why the Fed will do everything it can to get rid of inflation so they can get back to the good old days when interest rates are <laughs> one and two percent at their highs. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, just at the end of the at the end of all of this, I think that, you know, you have to come back to just th- this base reality is that, you know, we live in a highly indebted economy and it's not just federal debt that we're talking about. It's not just government debt. It's student loan debt. It is corporate debt. It is individual debt. It is credit card debt. It is auto loan debt. I mean, we are just have been leveraging ourselves up, you know, we and, and we all want to blame, right? We want to blame the economy or the government or somebody, right? We just all want to blame somebody for the reason that cost of living is so high. But we never want to look at our own 
actions as individuals. Again, you know, why are housing prices so high? Well, it's because we spent 20 years not making a 20% down payment on homes. We figured out all these kind of workarounds to have a split mortgage. So I didn't have to make a down payment. I didn't have to pay PMI insurance. I didn't have to do these things. And that uh, obviously creates more demand. And so you have higher prices. It's always a supply-demand game. But we've been living so far beyond our means for so long, we have such a high level of debt across the economy that it's not just higher interest rates that are ultimately going to you know, impede you know, the U.S. debt problem. It's an entire economic system problem that is right. built on leverage, and that leverage has been a function of low interest rates. The, the entire economy can't withstand higher rates which means that interest rates have to go lower if you're just going to maintain some economic growth. Right. Let me let me say two quick things before sure. we leave here. This is the lag effect. The lag effect is slowly but surely it's hitting the government finances and it's resulting in the downgrade and it's you know, it's causing issues. This is it takes a while for high interest rates to affect things. Now we're starting to see people notice the government fiscal problem. And it's going to the lag effect will continue to work through the economy in various other ways, too. It's not just the U.S. government. Like you said, mm -hmm. we're all going to be a victim of higher interest rates at some time. It just takes a while. And the second one is the old acronym TINA. You know, we used it for stocks. There is no alternative. Well, for the Fed, too, they better reconsider TINA because there is no alternative other than much lower interest rates. Right. Exactly. And that's uh, that's that's a great ending point. Again, you know, this the, the important thing to take away from the conversation today is, you know, don't let headlines drive your investment decision making. You have to go back and look at history. You have to go back and look at the fundamentals of, of what drives certain asset classes. And again, when you're looking out into the future, where are we going to be? you know, in terms of bond prices, stock prices, et cetera. And if stock prices do better in a lower interest rate environment, if bond prices do better in a lower interest rate environment, where do you think, you know, assets need to be weighed up, you know, for that potential outcome when it, when it does occur? It doesn't mean it's going to happen today, not tomorrow, not next week, not next month. But there's only, to Mike's point, there's only one direction that interest rates can ultimately go, and that has an impact on all other asset classes and prices. All right, wraps up the show for the day. Uh, be sure by the website. Mike's latest article is out on the website now. We'll have our newsletter out this weekend talking a little bit more. I've got some charts and graphs uh, on this conversation of the fiscal debt uh, this weekend in our newsletter as well. So, again, it's all there for you, realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day.